0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with William Bankston. William is a professor of sociology at St. Joseph's College in New York. In addition to numerous publications and conference presentations, he has been a pioneer in the clinical research of energy medicine. He's the author of the Sounds True audio learning program, Hands-On Healing, a training course in the energy cure, where he explores his research and demonstrates the techniques he's refined to produce full cures of cancer in experimental mice. In this episode, William and I spoke about his work and the amazing results he's documented, the image cycling technique, which lies at the heart of his energy healing approach, and his concept of resonant bonding, or the ways in which organisms connect or entangle with one another. Here's my very far-reaching and intriguing conversation with William Bankston. Bill, one man's quest to unravel the mystery of hands-on healing. Tell us a little bit about your quest when it started, when you became interested in hands-on healing.
1: I became interested in hands-on healing coming from the vantage point of a skeptic. And to this day, I remain a skeptic. And by a skeptic, I mean I'm someone who doesn't know the answer, and I don't have any strong belief system one way or the other. So I've met, for example, people who believe strongly in the legitimacy of a particular hands-on technique. I've met people who strongly disbelieve in the legitimacy of a particular hands-on technique. And I wouldn't say I fall into either camp. I'm rather data-driven. And so I consider my best position, uh, from a personal point of view, to be one of open-minded skepticism. Okay. Uh, I think that the word skeptic has been misused uh, very much. So, I, for example, I've spoken at skeptical societies, and it turns out they're not skeptics at all. They're believers. They believe in the illegitimacy of whatever they're debunking. Yeah. And that, to me, is a, is a believer. I'm, I'm not a believer, one way or the other, uh, because I don't know enough, frankly.
0: Okay, but yet you're teaching people how to do hands-on healing. So you must have some conviction in what you're doing.
1: I have a tremendous amount of conviction in what I'm doing, but what happens is I'm constantly surprised at what happens when I do what I do. And so I really default to the position of this is an experience, it's an interesting journey, and I'm interested in what other people can do with what I seem to have discovered or stumbled upon. And the explicit answer to your question is that many, many years ago, uh, I ran in by happenstance to an untaught gentleman who found out quite spontaneously that he was what he called a psychic. And I started, I was a skeptic back then, too, and this is in the early 1970s, and I started to give him objects to read, and I would design studies and double-blind studies, and I couldn't make his effect go away.
0: Can you give me an example of one of the studies you designed early on to test this person? Sure.
1: In one particular study, he was doing psychometry, and he was doing physical diagnoses of what people's ailments were. And in anecdotal experience, he seemed to be remarkably, remarkably accurate. And I wanted to take this into a very controlled setting. So what I did is I got a friend of mine who worked in a hospital to get a friend of his who was an admitting nurse to get patients as they were coming into a hospital to sign a blank index card. And the index card, they consented to do this. They, they just said, can we play with this? Uh, the blank index card was put into an opaque envelope, which was put, into a, was put into another opaque envelope. I then went and picked up the opaque envelopes, having no idea even the gender of the person. I would hand it to my friend who I was investigating. He would do a physical diagnosis And then we're skirting a little bit here, but we would then check the diagnosis of the medical community um, and compare it to his diagnosis. Uh, So we did eight of those. On one particular case, I thought that I had found him to make a mistake, but it turns out he had been – there was a medical diagnostic mistake. This guy was really on the money. So
0: all he had to go on was the name of the person. He had
1: no name. He had nothing. He was handed an opaque envelope, and there was no chance. What was written on the index card? A name.
0: Right. So the but name you was. He couldn't see
1: it, but the name was there. The name was there. Right. So that a person had signed a blank index card. Wow. Which was placed inside. Which was placed inside. There would be no possibility of giving a sensory cue. I didn't know the answer, and we wouldn't know the answer for about a month later. After he had finished his reading, we would go back and check it against the medical records to see if there was a match.
0: Okay, so you're a skeptic, but what did you make of this? How did you interpret this?
1: I interpreted it as I want to keep going. Okay, His readings turned into healings quite spontaneously as he was doing, I guess, intuitive diagnoses of the physical conditions of people. He was also then starting quite spontaneously and without any teacher or experience. Uh, to get these symptoms on himself, and people were alleging through anecdote that when they he was getting the symptoms on himself, it was leaving them.
0: Okay, so I mean, he'd like would work on someone who, let's say, had back pain. He would get the back pain, and the he person... wasn't
1: working on them. He was doing a reading. Oh, he was just so, just it, in the diagnostic process. I hand you, I hand him my watch. Okay. He says, "Oh, you've got. I'm I'm feeling this, this, and this, and I I'm then reporting. Wow, it just left me." So let's say I have a migraine headache. I right. hand him my watch, he gets the headache. I don't tell him I have a headache. I'm not even in the same room. Yeah. And I would report then when he got it, it would leave me. He thought that was crazy. I thought that was crazy. Yeah. So we it, it, the interesting part was I was investigating someone who was also skeptical. Uh-huh. And he was open to me because I'm kind of relentless after data. And so I set about doing study after study after study. It turns out that when he was telling me a story about one of these uh, diagnoses, I too was in physical pain. I used to have a bad back. And so I said to him quite spontaneously as we were sitting in a kitchen, Would you put your hands on my back? Uh, I had given up a swimming scholarship. I had a chronic lower back pain. I had been in pain for five years or so. Um, nothing more than other people with chronic lower back pain. You know, it's nothing critical, annoying. And so I said to him, well, you're doing this. Can you put your hands on my back? And he said, then what? I said, I don't know. Make it better. My back became Novocaine. It felt like it was Novocaine. The Novocaine feeling wore off from the outside in, and I haven't had a back pain since. That was over 35 years ago. I became very interested. He was shaken up by that Mm -hmm. uh, because he was a person without a teacher, without a school of thought, without a grounding in anything, and this was happening to him. And then we started to watch, he and I, as he put his hands on patient after patient after patient. I don't know if you call it a patient, volunteers. And we watched what happens. And on some things, he was able to effect very immediate and drastic changes. On other things, he wasn't. And I became fascinated by the patterns.
0: What were you able to discover about those patterns? Why did some people heal and other people didn't?
1: I don't know, and I still don't know to this day why some people heal. There certainly is variance in the rate with which people do get better. If, if you could somehow put together as a thought experiment 100 people who have a particular condition, and, and of course you can't do this in the real world, but let's assume, I've done it with mice, but in the case of people, let's say 100 people have a, a condition X, there's going to be a range of speed with which they respond or don't respond to healing. And that's, uh, to me, still uh, a great unknown. If I were to guess, it tends to be the longer the person has had the condition, the harder it is or the longer it takes to fix. That would be one speculation. The person's mental attitude mattered. If they were a believer in this healing stuff, it tended to take longer to heal than if they were a skeptic.
0: Mm, That's kind of counterintuitive.
1: Um. I'm not sure. I, I guess it depends on your, your set of assumptions. So, yeah. a believer, I think, has a stake in the outcome and is more has more of an ego involvement in what, what's going on. And so, I think, it, to use this loosely, they're more likely to get in the way. A skeptic who's just willing to let it rip is likely to get better faster. Interesting. I think a young person, all other things being equal, is more likely to get better faster. I think a person who's otherwise healthy except for the condition is likely to get better faster. We found he couldn't do certain things. He couldn't affect certain things at all. And the, the standing joke that I go around telling is that he couldn't affect a wart. And a wart is supposed to be the easiest thing for a healer to fix, and this guy could treat a wart all day and all night, and nothing would happen. Benign tumors were very, very difficult for him. Malignant tumors were easy, uh, but benign tumors were very difficult. So
0: oh, Okay, uh, well, let's, let's pause there, because you you gave a speculative observation about perhaps why someone who is a skeptic might heal faster than a believer. Just give me a a possibility of how could he heal people of malignant tumors but not a wart? How does that make any sense?
1: It doesn't and and so it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't understand how all this stuff works. And so I don't know enough to say that a wart doesn't make sense and a malignant tumor does. That would imply that I had some sort of theoretical position that I had I could make predictions. And I'm perfectly open of saying that in the over 30 years of research that I've done, I went the first 20 without getting a single hypothesis right. And that implies, of course, by extension, that I really don't understand this stuff at all. Even if I can produce it and even if I can understand the correlates to it, I don't understand really all the things that are going on.
0: Do you have any hypotheses
1: in your work? Oh, I have some now that are actually working and under laboratory conditions. So could you tell me what those are? Well, I took the observation that malignant tumors are a lot easier to fix, certainly, than a wart. Um, And I took that into the lab, and I started doing experiments with uh, mice. And I've done, at this point, 10 experiments on laboratory mice in five different labs and two medical schools. And so I've done hundreds and hundreds of mice at this point, and I can make certain kinds of hypotheses. One of the early... In my first experiment, we certainly didn't know what was going to happen. And it turns out I used... I was the stand-in healer for the first experiment. It was done at City University of New York. And I took a cage of mice, uh, which had 100% fatality in 14 to 27 days, and I treated them using techniques of healing uh, that he and I worked out, and uh, the mice got better. Uh, they not only got better, they lived their full lifespan, and they were immune to future injections. That's very interesting. That's a, that's a pattern that has sustained itself. So in a, in a mouse model, and actually by now several mouse models, we have cures uh, where there has never been a cure before full lifespan cure, immune for life, uh, et cetera, et cetera. This is very interesting to me. Mm. Uh, But among the anomalies in all of this work is that the control mice, the mice that were not actually treated by me, under certain conditions they would remit too. Mm. And that really bothered me. So in order to get mice to die, we had to send them to another city. If they were in the same building and anyone who knew the healing techniques came into contact with them, even for a few moments, they would all remit. That was very, very puzzling. And so we tried all sorts of permutations, putting controls in clean rooms, putting them in different buildings, sending them to other cities, and all this kind of thing. And after, oh boy, over 20 years of hypothesizing and running tests, each one of these tests take a long time. You got full lifespan cure of two years and such. It takes a while to get this stuff done. Uh, But what happened was, I came to a Theoretical understanding of resonant bonding, mm. of entanglement. And the classical experimental design, which everybody who's trained in science goes under, is that you take a group of volunteers, mice, people, whatever it might be, and you randomly split them up into two groups. You do one thing to one group of subjects. You do nothing to the other. The, thing, the group you do nothing to is a control, and the group you do something to is the experimental group. And the difference between the two is the treatment effect. My problem was I didn't have technically a treatment effect because the group that all the mice were getting cured in a mouse model that should have 100% death. And it turns out, I think, that somehow, and I don't know the mechanism yet, but somehow the mice in my experiments become bonded to each other so that a treatment of one mouse becomes a treatment to all mice. So this makes sense to me. I mean, I understand
0: at least the concept of resonant bonding when you start with one group because they've already built a bond. So even if you ship them to another city, there would still be some kind of energetic connection there. But couldn't you have a control test of a completely different group of mice that had never bonded, but you injected with the same illness and then you're working on one group? Do you know I mean? A, a group of mice that didn't you, you, know each you other. You could,
1: but that would be a violation of just standard scientific procedure. It shows and, how much I know
0: about standard well, scientific actually, procedure. Well, actually, your method well. would
1: probably work. But people would look at it and go, but it's not the same mice. But it would probably work. Now, the reason that I could make a conclusion about resin bonding is because the mice models... Mice? Mouse models? The models of mice <laughs> that I used had 100% death. This could death. be a
0: real tongue twister if That's we right. took That's it down right. that
1: yeah. road. Yeah, okay. Uh, it, it has 100% death. And so I know what should have happened. Right. The mice should have died. In one mouse model, they all should have died by day 27. In another mouse model, they should have died by approximately day 50. And by, by day, I mean days after injection of the cancer. And thousands and thousands and thousands of studies are done on these mice. There's nothing exotic about what I have. And the kinds of mouse models that I use, no mouse has ever had a remission. And I was getting all of them remitting. I'm slightly simplifying the data, but in in essence, all of the mice were remitting. And so the question was, what's wrong? And we were giving them double the lethal dosages. We were giving them double injections. We tried any way we could to kill these mice. And five different labs and two medical schools whose day job is to do this could not kill these mice. And so I came to the conclusion, and now I have some pretty good evidence, I think, um, that there is the possibility of bonded groups. And one of the questions I need to work out now is, what's the mechanism of the bonding? Is it the similar experience of the mice? Is it the consciousness of the experimenter? And if a bond can be made, can a bond be broken? Mm hmm And so everyone has had a subjective experience of the creation of bonds. You felt close to people, places, things. And at other times, felt not close to the same people, places, and things. And so clearly, bonds are fluid. And I think that if we set up the right experimental conditions, we have, well, we have, for example, placebo effects. And what's a placebo effect? A placebo effect is getting an effect in a group with no active agent. And I'm wondering, and I've been working on some placebo problems, that perhaps placebo effects aren't just suggestion. Perhaps placebo effects are actual resonant bonding between two groups.
0: Okay, so this is is very interesting to me, this idea of one of your hypotheses is that resonant bonding exists, and you want to look more into it. But that doesn't really tell us very much in terms of uh, hypotheses about how a hands-on healing technique works in the first place Absolutely on not. any I one mouse. Do you have any hypotheses about that?
1: Uh, I have a strong hypothesis that I'm clueless. Uh, but as a follow-up to that, I've looked at correlates of healing. So I've looked at surrounding secondary effects. So I'll give you a couple of examples, and I have a bunch. I, I'm interested also in what happens to the healer, and what happens to the healee. So I myself have used myself as a guinea pig and spent, to date, 13 hours having my head examined in an MRI. Okay. I haven't published these data yet. It's interesting. I have a paper about to come out on EEG work, where I did a relatively sophisticated EEG analysis, sampling two brains at a distance, sampling 38 leads every 500th of a second to see what happens when these healing techniques are going on, what happens to the person doing the techniques, and what happens to the recipient of the techniques, even though they're spatially separated. And the paper that's going to come out will demonstrate, I think, some really interesting brain effects. Among the things that we discovered was my brain goes to a very specific frequency, harmonizes with itself, harmonizes with itself a third time. So I have intra-brain triple harmonics. And then there's an entanglement with the other brain that matches the frequency. This has never been seen in EEG research. That's interesting. It's interesting, but I don't know if it doesn't really address your question. Does that have anything to do with healing? So it's a secondary physiological correlate, but I don't know for sure whether that is really if I've nailed down the healing effect
0: could you explain to me again exactly what's going on inside your brain one more time, the harmonics that are created? What, what, I don't quite get that.
1: In my brain, when I do a healing technique, yeah. my brain goes in pulses, not all the time. It's not a toggle on off, but my brain goes in pulses to a particular frequency. Okay. Recognizable frequency. And then my brain itself harmonizes with itself with the exact double frequency.
0: That's the part where I got lost. How does, what do you mean your brain harmonizes with itself? Let's
1: say the the brain is at 7.5 hertz, just to make up a number. Okay. It will also have in the same spot in the brain a 15 hertz.
0: Okay, I'm with you now.
1: And then it will do a 7.5 in addition to that. And all three are harmonizing with themselves. Okay. And then it appears in the recipient's brain. That's interesting. I don't know if it has anything to do with healing. But it's interesting, and it, it goes to the idea of an entanglement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It goes to the possibility of simultaneity, at least. I don't know if one causes the other. Uh, so so that's, that's what I mean by a physiological correlate. If we look at physical space and we put a random event generator, uh, essentially an electronic coin flipper that flips at 200 times a second, ones and zeros, by the laws of statistics, you know exactly should be half ones, half zeros. If I do a mental technique or a healing technique on the machine itself, nothing happens to the machine. Nothing at all. If I treat a, a cage of mice and the machine is in the room, it goes bluey. Mm. That's interesting. We've done studies with geomagnetic probes. That's about to come out in a journal. Um, and that is uh, the same thing. If I do a healing technique on a geomagnetic probe looking for micropulsations uh, nothing happens but if i treat a person or a uh, a mouse and the probe is in the room the probe goes nutty
0: can you help me understand why this might be happening
1: i'd love to well that's the fun of research so i if i knew more i could even make predictions as to why that should happen but as I've owned up already, I don't understand how this works. The The mother load question is, what is it? When I left here last night, I was out to dinner with a physicist friend of mine, and we're planning research, hoping to do research, on trying to find out what it is. And how do we filter, stop? Because unless we know what it is, we can look at all the correlates we want, and it doesn't necessarily isolate what the healing... Is we And don't what know, you, mean for by, example, you mean by
0: it, the mechanism of healing? Yes. What is the mechanism that what allows the, hands-on healing to be effective?
1: What work? happens even when healing occurs? Is there any energy in healing? Is it energy or is it information? And so it's very possible, and one of my speculations at this point, is that healing is not, this is heretical, I understand, healing is not the giving of energy, even though we in common parlance talk about energy healing and there are energy healing societies and all those kinds of things. Healing may, in fact, and I'm speculating here, so don't take this as like I'm making this claim, healing may not be energetic. Healing may be informational.
0: Okay, and so, it may so. not
1: be the the healer themselves. It may be a response to need. So that a healing attempt on a healthy organism will produce a very different response than a healing attempt on an unhealthy organism. And my suspicion is that the healing comes from the recipient.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to have to slow you down again. Just bear with me, Bill. (laughs) I I want to understand. I I I, I don't know if I follow the difference, first of all, between something very simple, I think, which is what's the difference between energy and information? You said it could be this, it could be that. It could be energy or information. What's the difference?
1: Energy implies... A power source which travels over space, diminishing with the square of the distance. So the light in this room diminishes as it moves, but there's an energetic transference of light and photons and all that. Information is giving of, inform- I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure how to, how to categorize information. Stuff that could be used, but without an, informa- without an energy source per se. Okay. So, for example, and again, this is speculative, and I've got a really multi decade history of always being wrong. But a mouse, or let's just say an organism who has an illness, may be missing information. And what the healer may do is not energetically do anything, but rather supply the information that the mouse can use.
0: Wow. That's very interesting.
1: And if that's the case, then we're talking about a source of information, the specific transmission of the details of that information contingent on the specific needs of the organism. So that, for example, if you did a... I think there are fundamental methodological flaws in a whole bunch of healing research. If you did research on, for example, cancer in a Petri dish, I think it's fundamentally flawed because the cancer in a Petri dish has no need. So my prediction, though, I've never tested this, my prediction is if you treated cancer in a Petri dish, the cancer should thrive. What is the cancer? It's happy cancer. It's Mm -hmm. running around in a Petri dish having a ball.
0: How do we know that the work that you're doing with mice translates into humans. I mean, there's a big difference between humans and mice, right?
1: They're pretty close, which is why...
0: I I feel close to mice, which is actually why, you know, your your intention to kill all these mice is, you know, a little hard hard to hear, but anyway. Me
1: too. I mean, I'm not having fun. Okay. Um, And so um, I rationalize it as it's got a greater good. So right now I'm trying to figure out how to reproduce the healing without me. Uh, because it, if if I'm the only person who can do this, then it's not particularly interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If you can understand the mechanism under which so that I become irrelevant, that's interesting. So the goal is always to be irrelevant, I would hope. Um, and the reason that you, you study mice is because they are so similar to, to, to people. There are ancestors in a real Our distant ancestors, at least a couple generations, (laughs) were were mouse-like. We're ninety-nine point something percent genetically identical to a mouse. You do a little fiddle here, a little fiddle there, and you got a person. But you don't need to do much fiddling. Uh, They got the same organ systems, the same structure, the same. You know, I mean, there's differences physiologically, but they're really close. Which is why almost all research, if you're, for example, if you're doing drug research, you're you're always starting with mice. Mm-hmm. Because if it doesn't work in mice, it's probably not going to work in people. And then there's going to be some problems of transitions from mice to people. Right.
0: Okay, so this is a critical question, and it involves us tracking back a little bit in your personal story. You mentioned that you want to become replaceable, and you want what you're doing to be reproducible, because that's the only way that it'll really be effective. It's the only way that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, but let's track back. Here you met this healer mm-hmm. when you were a relatively young person, and you started studying His tremendous abilities that were curious, miraculous to to you. You couldn't understand them. How did you become a
1: healer? I asked him, same same theme, I asked him how to make himself irrelevant. Because otherwise he's just a freak. And through incessant questions on my part, on what he was doing without, of course, being taught and such, having no teacher or school or we were flabbergasted on a daily basis, what we could do to reproduce what he was doing so it wouldn't be unique. And so the healing techniques which I used on the mice came out of that. And so they're completely faith-free, belief-free. The most important criteria for my experiment is that you be... An extreme skeptic. I've never dealt with a believer. I have no idea whether a believer can, be, can do this stuff. I'm not being facetious. I have no idea if a disbeliever can do it. These were people who were extremely skeptic and actually thought I was kidding when I told them what I wanted them to do. And so in student logs, uh, when they were given cancerous mice to fix and fix them, they actually thought I was doing studies in gullibility. In order to get into the experiment, you had to audibly laugh in my face when I told you what the the task would be. It had to be that level of being incredulous.
0: Okay, but so I want a little more detail here on, what was the name of the healer that you studied? Bennett Mayrick. Bennett. So, what did Bennett teach you? And did Bennett teach other people besides you?
1: Oh, yeah. Bennett and I uh, evolved through introspection and many questions and trying to figure out stuff, a technique of very rapid mental imaging. And also to do that conjoined to certain kinds of hands-on practices.
0: Okay, but let's pause for a second. Bennett wasn't using a technique like that.
1: No, he came about it naturally. He did eventually to enhance his own ability.
0: Uh huh. So so, how did you discover that this rapid image cycling had anything to do with healing? I mean, here's Bennett. He just happens to have this gift. It seems
1: to this day, I don't. I can't connect a particular technique to a particular healing effect. So I don't have any idea if if you want me to be a stickler uh, empiricist, what produces what? Uh, so the system which we evolved involved a sequence of skills to build up. And he made the prediction that if this sequence of skills were built up, and he made this, I don't know, call it a psychic prediction, if this sequence of skills were built up, it would be able to reproduce what he did.
0: So is it fair to say that someone who had this spontaneous gift then said, I'm going to try to see how this thing that happened spontaneously could be taught to other people and then developed a method. But it wasn't the method he used to become. He did
1: u- not to become, right. but to enhance, and he eventually used the method himself.
0: And for you, 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 your gifts opened up through the practice of this method. You didn't have gifts before?
1: I don't know. Uh, I don't have no pre- and post-test. And this goes to uh, a controversial question that I've posed before, uh, and it's going to be somewhat ironic sitting here, uh, and that is, uh, is there any evidence that healing can be taught? Um, And I put out a paper in 2008 asking the question, I'm not suggesting it can't, uh, but I'm suggesting no one's ever done pre-post, and no one's ever done it in really controlled conditions. So it is certainly the case that almost everybody who heals has been taught by someone else, including myself. I have an enormous amount of evidence of a healing effect under experimental conditions, but I can't sit here and tell you that it is due to rapid image cycling. How much is due to rapid image cycling versus hands-on? Whether the hands-on or the rapid image cycling is what produces it in conjunction, what produces what? I have no way to parse that out. I, actually, I do have a way to parse it out. I just don't have the facilities or the lifespan to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and so right now I'm taking an awkward path because my real driving passion is to find out what produces what. The only way I can do that is if my physicist friends come through and figure out a way to measure it. If I could have a direct measurement of it, I could parse this out very quickly within my lifespan.
0: Okay, so let's just slow down here for one second. A direct measurement of it. What might that look like if you had a fantasy research experiment? You have all the resources in the world to measure it. Would That's actually it? what
1: we were talking about for three hours over dinner last night. What, what might it be? What, how could we get at it, It's properties. And every time either one of us suggested a possibility, the other one could shoot it down. So to, be, to cut to the bottom line, I really don't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if I put out a frequency, I don't know whether it has something to do with healing. If it's a frequency, and it's a frequency there... And it's transmitted by some sort of energy, and so there, if there is an energy transmission, then the energy transmission by anything we know must diminish with distance. And healing, so far in anything I've looked at, does not. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the micro, uh, in the geomagnetic micro we've tried those at two inches. And we've tried them at 2,000 miles. You get the same deviation of what, what should happen. It's identical. Everything about it is identical. Superimpose one to the other. What's the difference? I don't know what the difference is. So we get anomalous productions of waves, regardless of distance, which implies it's not a conventional energy, or it's certainly not an energy that we can put our finger on, because no matter what you have, it diminishes with distance. So there's a problem. If it's an energy which rides a carrier wave around the planet, there would have to be a way to harmonize with that carrier wave. And then, even if you explained it by that mechanism, you would, you would predict that the signal would not diminish with distance, but you would have to come up with some mechanism by which consciousness itself would be able to harmonize with the carrier wave. So I haven't solved the problem. I've come up with a mechanism which would predict non-diminishment with distance, but I haven't solved the problem of how does this happen in the first place. And so I've spent quite a bit of time kicking this around. Mm -hmm. And your question, I think, is exactly the right question to ask. And I'm just saying I'm not smart enough to figure it out yet, nor do I know anyone who knows. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a group I'm associated with very strongly— of the Society for Scientific Exploration. If you're interested in research, and I I can't give you a a better group that I'm aware of than the Society for Scientific Exploration, and just for a plug for it, scientificexploration.org. This is a group of scientists from around the world, about a thousand strong, who are not afraid to look at things that are outside the mainstream. It's an extraordinary group of people with extraordinary interests and extraordinary abilities, and we have kicked this around and kicked this around and they 're not just about healing they 're about anomalies and in, mm-hmm. in whatever field, so we got an uh, doing alternative energy this summer and specializing last year. I was the program coordinator um, We did it at the University of Virginia. We focused in part on healing, and so there was really intense. We had people from all over the place kicking this around and just talking until midnight and Every time someone comes up with something, it's shut down. And so, certainly myself has not been able to figure it out. And and it, it probably will require some s- conceptual shift that no one's been able to come up with yet. But we don't know what that shift is.
0: Okay, so, so meanwhile, we're living in this mystery with some hypotheses now that you've been able to identify and float forward. And yet you're teaching a technique, a technique that you and Bennett evolved together called the image cycling technique. So could you describe that for us? What is the image cycling technique? I know we don't know if it works or not, but you're teaching it because you somehow believe it.
1: I know that people experience very interesting phenomena when they do it, uh, but whether that is explicitly related to certain kinds of healing, I don't know, any more than I can answer you why uh, a malignant growth is easier to fix than a benign growth. Yeah. Now, if you switch healing modalities, I'm told, because I'm not an expert in cross-healing yeah. stuff, uh, so so there's a variety of schools of thoughts and approaches, and, and, and. And, and there are people who laugh at me, for example, when I say I can't do a wart, because, you know, any putts can do it. And there are people who say, um, well, I can do this, but I can't do that. It doesn't match my experience. It doesn't mean mine's better. That's never actually even occurred to me. It's rather that, isn't that an interesting phenomenon? Mm-hmm. That different kinds of approaches and different kind of methods seem to produce different things. Now, maybe we can backtrack through that, just the clinical or experimental application to try to figure out what the characteristics are. So wouldn't it be neat if technique A produced a different response than technique B? Clinically, I mean, you know, that's a different question, but experimentally to try to find out what it is and to find out what's happening inside them as they do their technique. So if Mm -hmm. you're doing healing modality A and I'm doing healing modality B, are our brains similar? I'd Mm -hmm. like to know. I mean, maybe healing has nothing to do with the brain. Mm-hmm. But I'm fairly convinced, in a transitory way, that healing has very little to do with conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. I think that healing is closer to an autonomic response to need. And so I'll give you another experiment. This is really interesting. As long as you don't ask me, what does it mean? <laughs> I'm in an enclosed MRI, and my hand is stick- My left hand is sticking out of the MRI. So basically, as far as I can, that's as far as I can do. I can just stretch my hand out. And into my hand is dropped envelopes with pictures and hair samples of cancerous animals in some and not in others. So I'm just sitting in an MRI, and if you've ever been in an MRI, it's ugly, noisy, and all that stuff. Fortunately, I'm not claustrophobic, so that part doesn't bother me, but I'm just lying in there and thump, 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 and it's really ugly, and my hand's sticking out, and uh, uh, they're dropping envelopes in there, and I can obviously feel the envelopes hitting my hand. Now, if something hits your hand, it's going to produce clearly a response in the brain. It's just the the tactile awareness, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know anything. I mean, I, I know nothing. I'm just hanging out. And so I feel the envelope, and then I feel another envelope, and then I feel another, and they're taking pictures of my brain. My brain's very different if there's cancer in there. Mm. That's interesting, whatever that means.
0: Now, Bill, I'm curious, first of all, about the image cycling technique that you and Bennett developed, so I'd love to hear a description of it. But also, so both of these things, I'd like to know... As you have used this technique and worked on actual real people, what kinds of results you've gotten?
1: Well, I need to preface that by saying that clinical work, which is where this all started, watching Ben, is very, very frustrating to me because you have condition A and it goes away. You have Condition B, it doesn't go away. And there's all sorts of things that seem to have no effect. But you never know why. And so I can't isolate variables. I don't know what otherwise would have happened. Unless you're dealing... The advantage of my mouse model... It's not my mouse model. The advantage of working with animals is that you know in thousands and thousands of experiments what otherwise would have happened. The mice are going to die in a certain frame, and it's really mapped out, and there's thousands of studies about it, et cetera, et cetera. If you work with people, it's tough. Um, Sometimes they get better. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. And sometimes they don't even come back, so you can't even follow through. So when you ask what happens with a person, it really depends. I I mean, i got to qualify that all over the place because certainly the most common response of people coming for treatment to Ben was that they never came back. Did they ever get better? Did they die? What happened? I have no idea. And so you've got, in the case of people in particular, a huge what's known as a file drawer problem. So I can't give you the percentage of success to percentage of failure because I don't know what, all the missing data. And there's a huge file of missing data in, in, in people. In the case of what responded, malignant tumors respond of old stripe, Benign tumors don't. Conditions which exist for a long time don't. Almost no effect on Parkinson's. No effect at all on a wart that I could determine.
0: Have you ever worked with a person who had a malignant tumor that didn't get better?
1: Yeah, people who who have malignant tumors and don't get better have all been in the category of taking some sort of therapy whose intention was to kill. Not the organism, but selectively. So, for example, the subjective sense is, if someone's had, for example, radiation treatments, is, to me it's like trying to charge a battery that won't take a charge. And I don't think, for example, Ben was strong enough to overcome radiation treatment. I don't think he was strong enough to overcome. He was treating the chemotherapy, rather than the cancer. If the person didn't have any treatment, and that's a rare person, so if the person didn't, well, then cancer responds pretty quickly. But it depends on the aggressiveness of the cancer. And this goes also to a file drawer problem. So a very aggressive cancer is easier to treat than a less aggressive one. And this is also the case in mice models. So if you have a very aggressive form of cancer in animals, it will go away quicker than if you have a less aggressive and that that's been the clinical experience too so that that an aggressive cancer uh it's kind of like taking the energy of the system and playing the tape backwards
0: mm.
1: uh if you have a cancer that just kind of lopes along and just hangs out and goes dormant and 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 you know it's it's very hard to do i don't think that healing is any more than giving the missing piece, the information, the link that allows the organism to do it. And that's why I think that, for example, the in vitro model of trying to kill cancer in a, in a Petri dish, you know, you talk about the mice, it's kind of offensive, you know, that you're doing this, these horrible things. And I agree with you. I don't have a plan B. But it, I agree with you. I think it's worse to try to kill a cancer cell in a Petri dish. That is so offensive to me because you're asking them to do a study on killing. And while I don't completely dismiss the possibility that you can kill through killing techniques, I don't advocate them.
0: Do you have any data, you said you were the data man, on the number of people with malignant tumors that you've worked with and how many got better and and how many didn't?
1: It's, It's difficult for me to think of a case of someone who just did the healing, who didn't get better.
0: Okay, so now tell me this image cycling technique. Describe it to me, the technique you use and that you teach other people.
1: Uh, The image cycling technique involves extremely rapid imaging of things that are important to you and very specific that you're imaging in consort with the experience of an emotion. That's as short as I can make it.
0: That was pretty succinct.
1: So if I am doing this, the technique now, I might be imaging several hundred images a second of things that have been prepared by me in advance. Hundreds of images in one second? Yeah, I could go faster than that. But hundreds of images in a second of things, of a list of images that I've prepared that are idiosyncratic to me and the things that I want. This is done in response to emotion. That's the real short version. That's the, that's the 3 by 5 index card.
0: Okay, but hold on. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining like a film strip of images. Wonderful. And yet I can't imagine that many in a second. A second seems pretty fast to me. Yeah. Am I not cycling fast enough?
1: Yes, you're not cycling fast enough. I'm slow. No, I'm, well, frankly, I've, I've put in probably more practice than you have. And um, it's a skill that is awkward to begin and awkward to master like any other skill. So I, I liken it to playing sports. So if you had never played tennis before, and I'm a competitive tennis player, uh, and you and I played on opposite sides, we wouldn't be playing the same game.
0: Okay, so the idea is that I do this rapid image cycling with the emotion connected while my hands are are on someone or while I'm directing the energy of my hands to another person?
1: You would do the rapid image cycling in response to any emotion, any emotion. And if you have mastered it, you've done it without detracting from the experience you're having. In kind of an analogous way, I think the, the best analogies that I can come up with are in sports. So I'll go back to tennis. First of all, you're going to have to, the first time you go out on a tennis court and try to hit a ball, it's ugly. Going in the wrong direction, it's going straight up, it's going backwards, and you think this can't be done. Many hours later, you're playing a game that's reasonable. Maybe a couple of years later, and a couple of, and so you keep getting better. So it's not like, okay, I'm done. Here's your graduation certificate, you're a tennis player. There's no such thing as a tennis player, it's, it's, a, it's a continuum of skill. If you get good at it, first of all, you put in a lot of time. But if you get good at it, the other thing you do is you don't pay attention to what you're doing. And this is, there's an enormous literature on this, and, and it's, it's usually surrounding sports, but I think it works in life generally, and it's called flow. Yeah. And so I'm also, I used to be anyway, a tournament ping pong player. You can't have a faster game than, than ping pong. I mean, it's brutal. Uh, so the ball's coming at you at like 120 miles an hour, and you're 15 feet away. You get you get hurt if you get hit by a ping-pong ball. Uh, so not many people play like that. But it hurts. You know, you'll have a welt for quite a bit of time. You can't think about ping-pong and be any good at it. Yeah. you got to practice your brains out. And then to exp- you have to experience. I don't know how else to describe it. You experience this. And I've been in tournaments playing against people who... Hit the ball real hard, and I can't even see the ball. And I suddenly find my body in a particular position, and I'm hitting the ball back harder at them than they hit it at me. And I have no—I'm watching. So is the—I'm a spectator. This is I, almost an out-of-body experience. Yeah. So, so is the idea behind
0: doing the image cycling technique that you get into a flow state? Yes. That's the idea.
1: Yeah, and it takes a long time. For some, some then, people take to it better.
0: Why do you suspect that this it that we can't measure yet occurs when the healer is in a flow state or is more likely to occur when the healer is in a flow the
1: state? best I can give you is it's an intuitive hunch. So if I go into very, very rapid imaging, something happens to me physiologically. I can demonstrate the physiological changes. I can do it in an EEG, in an MRI. I can do the physiological correlates all around me. The random event generators go nutty when I do it. The, the micro pulsations go nutty. Stuff goes nutty around me. I feel something. That may be a complete and utter delusion, but I feel something. And so, as in most things, I feel the flow. And if you're feeling the flow... And you're connecting it to, boy, when I felt the flow, I was really good playing X. When I feel the flow, all I can give you is an intuitive hunch. Something happens. I, I'm not up to saying, look at this data. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not up to it. I, it's So that I, I'm leaving it in my intuitive hunch. And you want to know what the intuitive hunch is. I'm simply telling you it's an intuitive hunch. It's an experience that I have. Yeah, okay. That's it. So
0: I can imagine someone who maybe is listening to this, if they've gotten this far, the kind of person I'm thinking of, who might feel aggravated in this way. I know someone who's died of cancer. I know someone who flew around to... Seven, eight, ten different healers, energy healers, hands on healers, different, and they died. And here sounds true publishing this program called The Energy Cure, a book called The Energy Cure, and a hands on healing training program. And you know, it's just one more false promise out there. And Bill's been very careful to say he's not making any promises and he's not sure or clear. But, you know, my friend died and my my mother died. And I don't like hearing this. It upsets me. It gives people false hope.
1: Uh, I'm not trying to give people false hope. I'm trying to say that this is an exciting possibility. And the energy cure is a cure in experimental animals under controlled conditions. And so it is, as far as I'm aware, the only cure that people have come up with under control conditions. And there may be others, I just don't know of them. There is slightly misleading, as I say, I don't know if it's energy. And so I'm using that in a common parlance. I can't dispute that it is. I don't know that it is. But I understand the basis of your question. It's It's frustration. And I share the frustration because what I would like to do is make me irrelevant. And by making me irrelevant, I want literally or metaphorically a vaccine to do without me what seems to happen with the animals when I do it. And so I understand the frustration, and it's not, trust me, it's not just cancer. I'm frustrated all over the place, uh, and I have friends who died of cancer. I have... Did you try to work on them? No. No. Uh, I, I i don't um, i I don't get involved unless there's medical supervision and the people have to be ready for medical supervision and that's a very hard thing to do and so we're it's it's still at a very difficult and awkward state um, I've had people die of all sorts of things and no people have died also the other healers claim to be able to fix. And so I share the frustration, and I don't minimize it at all. My conclusion is, boy, would I like to take this to the next step. And so I'm also talking to a medical school now about a clinical trial. But I don't know where it's going to go. I really don't know where it's going to go. And it is certainly the case that I do not understand the basic mechanism.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's just the raw honest truth.
0: So finally, Bill, you've mentioned several times about your desire to become replaceable. And I'm curious just how much success you've had with that so far. What has been your success in teaching other people to use the image cycling technique and be effective as healers?
1: Well, I've had a number of student volunteers, faculty volunteers, all skeptics, learn the techniques, put their hands around cages of mice, and produce full cures. I've had a number of people take workshops in learning the kinds of things that I'm trying to put on the product here and go out and report interesting anecdotes, but I make a distinction between experimental conditions and anecdotes. And so people have reported back to me anecdotally of cures of a variety of conditions, sometimes... It doesn't have to be life-threatening. It could be pain. It could be accelerated wound healing. It could be things of that sort. Um, I've heard anecdotes all over the place. I don't know what to do with the anecdotes yet. And, and actually, part of what I seek here is more anecdotes, uh, in that I'm trying to teach whenever I can, whenever I get a chance, and have people try to master this. I'd like to have people make support groups for each other who've tried to master this practice sessions and such. And I'd like to feed into some central location. And on the end of the product, I'm going to give a location to feed into what their experiences have been. And so this is a work in progress. It's a quasi social experiment. Let's see where this goes. I think it's interesting. I think it's worth pursuing and I'd I'd like to pursue this in conjunction with the attempt to, under more traditional medical physical conditions, to also reproduce the effect without, without me.
0: Wonderful. What is that email address if people want to be in contact with you about their own experiences with hands-on healing?
1: Info at bangstonresearch.com.
0: Fabulous. I've been talking to Bill Bangston. He's the author of a new Sounds True book. Called the Energy Cure, One Man's Quest to Unravel the Mystery of Hands-On Healing, as well as an audio learning course on hands-on healing and specifically the image cycling technique that Bill teaches. Thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with us, and I really appreciate the passion that you have for discovery. Very welcome. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.